Hey everyone, Eric here, with a few updates since we recorded the episode. On the 5th of August, Virginia released the first contact tracing app utilizing the Apple-Google framework, dubbed COVIDWISE. On the 18th of August, Pennsylvania announced they've also created an application utilizing the framework called COVID Alert PA. However, no release date has yet been announced. Several other states have also released applications. However, these applications don't solely abide by the Apple-Google framework and may require additional identifying information for use. Utah released Health Together. North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming together released Care 19. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, podcast land. Welcome to the Tech Amendment. I'm A. Prince Albert III. And I'm Eric Gonzalez. Today, we're talking about contact tracing. Why are we doing an episode on contact tracing, Eric? Well, contact tracing using technology is being explored and developed globally, both by the tech industry and government entities, as a very viable solution to aid in stopping the spread of the novel coronavirus by using our cell phone devices to track how long we've been around another person. Now, the world is beginning to take this method a bit more serious given the success that South Korea experienced in being able to flatten the curve in their country in only 20 days. So in late February, they were reporting 1,000 cases uh, per day in the country, and by April, they were reporting daily positive numbers uh, in the single digits and also have one of the lowest uh, mortality rates on Earth. But it's important to talk about how they did that and essentially they enacted mass surveillance to be able to gather as much detail to report with accuracy the behavior and the movements of their citizens gathering data such as gps phone tracking information surveillance camera records and credit card transactions this enabled the korean center for disease control to alert in near real time citizens if they've been around someone tested positive for COVID, or if there is someone within vicinity uh, that has tested positive for COVID-19. So Eric, what actually is contact tracing? Well, the method of contact tracing for medical purposes has been around for quite some time, but to date has largely been a manually intensive process as it's required humans to physically log where other humans have been at places that they commonly frequently visit. Think restaurants, movie theaters, supermarkets, and doing so in an attempt to stop the spread of an infectious disease uh, or an outbreak by understanding who's been in contact with who. So naturally, in, in the day and age that we live in today, technology can be used to make that process much easier and a, a bit more accurate, or at least that's the hope. I, I know about Apple and Google building essentially an app or a framework for an app. Could you help us understand like what Google and Apple are doing with exposure notification? So that's exactly what's what's happening is, is what you began to mention, two key words there. One, they're creating a framework, right? So essentially Apple and Google got together to establish the bounds as to how someone can develop an application that's gonna allow us to effectively contact trace. And they're doing that through what you, you mentioned before in what's called exposure notification. And it's it means exactly in how it sounds and that essentially they built a system that logs uh, if we're next to each other 
and then alerts me if if you have the coronavirus or if I have the coronavirus, you'll get an alert. Uh, so that's the core of what this framework does. But the, it's important to, to note that they're not actually building an application. Mm-hmm. They're just setting the framework up and opening up mm-hmm. the capabilities of uh, any device that has iOS on it or mm-hmm. Android, which is just about every device on earth, right? right. Um, allowing them to essentially communicate uh, with a bit of privacy built into this framework to help us understand if either of us have uh, the virus. And so what what privacy is built in? As I've learned throughout uh, combing the documentation, essentially what happens is, uh, let's say you and I are spending time together uh, and we are both utilizing this framework uh, we're going to, our phones are going to be exchanging these just random identifiers. Uh, and these identifiers are, have nothing to do with our identity. Uh, they have nothing to do with our cell phone provider or any of that information that could p- potentially identify us. Mm-hmm. It purely just is a string of, of numbers that changes every 10 minutes mm-hmm. uh, that is going to tell us uh, how close we are to each other, uh, how long we've been around each other, and how great the Bluetooth signal was mm-hmm. to kind of serve as a, a measure of accuracy, uh, if you will. So let's say that you pop uh, positive for the coronavirus, mm-hmm. uh, but you've done a couple of things already if you're contact tracing, for instance. One, you've opted into an application that you had to download. Mm-hmm. That application is going to come from your state. Mm-hmm. So we live in the district. The district's creating a uh, application where we download that application from the app store, and then we also opt in uh, in our settings on our iPhone to say, yep, we want to uh, to provide our information for the purposes of contact tracing. Mm-hmm. Uh, once those applications, excuse me, have been downloaded and we've agreed to share that information, uh, if, if I pop positive for COVID-19, each day I'm going to be providing just how I'm feeling uh, and how I'm feeling for the next 14 days. Uh, and with that, uh, it's going to uh, essentially be stored by the the district's a- application until they know that one 14 days has passed hopefully i'm i'm clear but uh, but most importantly that i've had covid-19 uh, and that at least you you've been notified that you've been around someone you'll never know that it was me but you were in the space with someone who had it mm-hmm. unless you and i have, have only been spending time together so i just want to clarify eric so there are different applications. So let's say I have an Android, you have an iPhone. We may live in two different states where they're mandating two different apps, but I'm at a rest stop driving through your state and you had COVID and I find out a week later, okay? And it notifies me that you or one of us has it, whatever, okay. That the exposure notification framework makes it possible for different people from different states with different apps, even if they come in contact with each other and there's some later, you, we find out one of us pops positive, it'll still communicate with us. That's possible because of the Apple Google framework? Well, that's, that's actually, that's a great question, Prince. So uh, in its current phase, phase one is, the answer to that question is no. Uh-huh. Uh, and the key distinction to that is, the power is in is essentially in the states developing these applications to contact trace. So they're given that uh, they could 50 states can have 50 different contact tracing applications, mm-hmm. and they may not communicate effectively together. Uh, however, in as we approach phase two, 
in the Apple Google Framework plan, that's now going to be embedded directly into the software. So of the phone, the the OS, uh, whether it's Android or iOS, is going to have the ability to allow you to just decide to contact trace without the need to uh, download an application. And it's to solve that very problem that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. If you live in Texas and I live in the district, our applications decide that they don't want to work together. Uh, This avoids that when we get to phase two. And that phase two is TBD. You still don't have a firm timeline as to when exactly that's going to be released, but it's anticipated sometime throughout this summer. Important as we kind of get ready for what we all uh, potentially foresee as being the second, second wave. So is there anything else about the framework we need to know to understand how this thing works? Where can you find it, right? Like where can you opt in on your device? Yeah. If you go to your settings, it's it's embedded within your health application in your settings uh, under privacy. You'll see in there today, if you opened up your phone, the ability to uh, enact uh, the contact tracing app, but actually you can't use it because no state has uh, released an application just yet to allow you to contact trace. Uh, yeah, and even then, only four out of the 50 states have a- agreed to participate. Uh, so with that, I'd love to kind of get your perspective as to, one, why that is. If we've seen the data in South Korea, right, overnight law, uh, mass surveillance, all of this fidelity and really great context, context and information is there. Um I have only four out of 50 states kind of jumped into a solid framework from titans of industry. Yeah. So, Eric, this raises federalism issues, number one, right? So, again, kind of as I was hinting at before, the way the legal framework of our country is such that you have the Declaration of Independence, right? We're free from Great Britain, and this is why. So self-determinism in international law, but mm. think about that. Um, then part two is like the Bill of Rights, right? The Literally a document giving people rights against intrusive government action, right? And, yeah. and then the Constitution then talks about, okay, what are the enumerated responsibilities and authorities of a central federal government. And what is not enumerated there, boom, is pushed down to the states. So during the Continental Congress, right, states, we didn't envision contact tracing and technology as we know it today in the 21st century. So it's not enumerated in there. So Mm -hmm. as just a kind of originalist, textualist, literalist interpretation, contact tracing kind of is pushed down to the states because yeah. it's not specifically enumerated there. Let, let, let me caveat that too and say in the rest of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, there are different powers of the federal government that we can read new things into. Yeah. So like, you know, if there was some, um, well, let's just, Take what we're having, like a pandemic, right? That's a national crisis. It clearly affects stream of consciousness, right? It clearly affects commerce and policing powers, right? These things are broad clauses written in the Constitution that give the legal runway for a federal contact tracing program. So no, the word contact tracing is not going to appear in the constitution, right? Got <laughs> That's it. Right. But um, there are some powers and emergencies and many people feel like we're now in a national emergency 
that would merit some type of central government response. Okay, so it sounds like in the being the optimist that I am, there's potential for us to to get there. However, comma, there's just a lot of gray area in between, a lot of friction and a lot of doubt, even just outside of politics from from right users and social issues and, and data privacy that that just make this a really um, a strong point of contention for us to just unite overnight, even in the midst of a pandemic. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's a question of both legality and politics, right? So much our country's legal system in the creation of laws and the execution of laws, we elect those people. We elect two of the three branches of our government, right? Yeah. And so these conversations about the role of government and, you know, how much technology and access to technology the government should have and can, you know, private actors pretty much create a federal program, right? That pretty much does what the federal government would do without the protections of the federal government. Like, is that possible? Right. And so we're asking these questions in, in our political ethos right now. It's, 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 it sounds to me like it's, we from from private industry we have a, a a sound technological framework now we just kind of need the political framework to to marry with that to really take a lockstep in 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 using uh this this technology that's exactly right eric and i will say sometimes i'm going to admit law can be the enemy of the good because yeah. it's just such a patchwork of laws and regulations and hoops that things that kind of deserve a quick response like a pandemic that's clearly proliferating and worsening by the day yeah kind of should have a centralized response but kind of what you were alluding to before the mechanisms of our government really stop any kind of triggering of a sliding scale of eliminating our rights to get something done because that could be abused in a a bad time yeah it's definitely just it it just in having the conversation, there's just so much complexity and so many different uh, barriers to entry to get there. Absolutely. But um, there, there is some, some, some tech being developed around the framework and some applications being worked on that um, I think the users would definitely be interested in, in, in at least doing a quick Google search on. And one of them is, is, is from the organization MITRE, which is a non-for-profit research and development, non-government funded organization. And they created a contact tracing application already uh, called SaraAlert that's pretty interesting and is worth a quick Google search. And essentially it was developed on the concept behind uh, Dr. Paul Jarris, who lived the SARS outbreak in Vermont back in 2003 and recognized the lack of uh, contact tracing um, utilizing technology. He just saw the bear that it was in in, in the manual process. Uh, so they kind of really, uh, went full speed ahead and in April launched Sarah Alert, which does just what we've been talking about today and taking advantage of those alert functions in your phone. Uh, But it's important to mention that the Sarah Alert uh, application specifically deletes your data after 14 days. Uh, And they also ask for participation uh, daily and just kind of checking in on how you're feeling and and, uh, when you feel like you're um, 100% kind of back they, they, they gather all those metrics to assess exactly how COVID's working. So uh, applaud them for their work 
and MIT is working uh, on a similar effort as well. So hopefully we'll see this make some believers out of the other 46 states to adopt uh, some sense of an application. And I know I say that with a caveat because there are several states that are using their own tech. Mm-hmm. They're they're going third party and, and not using the, the framework as it exists and just building their own apps to get after the problem. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that works, all yet to be determined. There's a lot of good that can come out of this framework, and at least we have it on the shelf for if we decide to use it for the next pandemic, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, so it's really interesting, Prince. So now that we know that essentially the technology was built around kind of a reduction of rights, if you will, like, one, why haven't we done that in the United States? But two, like, how did that actually work and happen in South Korea? So this answer has kind of two parts. The first would be, you know, specifically what is the regulatory framework that they either created to make contact tracing work or repeal back to make it work, right? So South Korea has, again, a suite of um, data protection laws, in particular three that work together. They have the Personal Information Protection Act, the PIPA. They have something called the Network Act, it's the second one for short, and the Credit Information Act. For our purposes, we primarily only care about the first one, right, the PIPA. So they, um, in, on January 9th of this year, the Korean National Assembly passed amendments to these three laws, in particular to the PIPA, to change the concept of personal data. So personal data is not uh, the same as pseudonymized data or anonymized data, right? So if it doesn't have a personal aspect, a name, right, what we would call PII kind of associated with it, if it's just a data point for something like a national health crisis, it is not personal information anymore, right? So that's adding an amendment to a law to clarify a definition to essentially peel back, right, the um, the force of the word personal data and making data from a contact tracing app not be personal data, right, though it comes from people and their phones. That's interesting. So are you saying that essentially there are kind of buffers in their law that are allowed to kind of be stricken back a bit or buffers in place for them to be able to enact like regulation like this with kind of like generic language like health crisis oh yeah pandemic classifies data rights gone like this it just kind of fits conveniently or like it it shows that the korean suite of laws was very robust in an initial sense so the country the government would not have been allowed to do what it's doing during covid with existing laws they needed amendments to roll back to kind of erode back some of those tough, you know, teeth and nail laws um, that really protect individual subjects' data privacy. And I think that's interesting that you can pass laws to weaken existing law as a statutory matter, right? That That's totally possible, and that's the route they went. So why do you think, why don't we do that here in the United States? If, if we're seeing success, why not here? I'm going to defend us a little bit, okay? So... We are a much bigger country than South Korea, okay? Um, Our National Assembly, we don't call it a National Assembly, right? Our Congress, our legislative branch, bicameral, and it's huge, right? It's got just tons of members, 
tons of interest and it you know it, it kind of creates laws for so many more people so there are more joints in the process right and more stakeholders more people making decisions that you can't have something like this couldn't happen in the u.s overnight too many different representatives and senators too many different um, stake stakeholders. You know, you have federalism issues here, right? Because states have their own kind of forms of government and what's possible there versus federally what's possible as the framework law. And so just the way our country is set up, it's not possible really just to enact something so quickly and so specific. And really what the Korean National Assembly is doing here is what the courts do in the U.S. It's courts that here, you know, the law would say, you know, personal data is this generic definition, right? And then somebody, you know, data's collected and someone litigates and says, hey, we're a pharmaceutical company. It's a national crisis. We don't want the data that we have on people to solve this ongoing pandemic to be personal data because we got to do too much with it so we're willing to peel back some of the pii and just keep the bean counting numbers in order to produce data right to get over a pandemic and a court would normally hear that in normal times right and would say when congress enacted this law they meant they wrote personal data was this but they'll go back in the different you know the hearing notes and witness testimony and congressional questions and congressional records and they would say congress probably intended this to be a little looser than what is intended and they would side on the side of pharmaceutical companies right that's just kind of a fictitious example of the precision of definitions in a law really comes by the courts in the U.S., not by the legislature, right? And But here, the legislature specifically and expeditiously passed a law just to make it possible as quickly as possible. That galvanizing that much support for such specific provisions is slim to none in the U.S. It's not really possible. So, Eric, tell me, are data breaches a real concern? As a lawyer, I'm thinking about risk and I'm thinking about risk mitigation. So has the Apple Google team thought about breaches and risk too? So yeah, in, in the context of the framework that Apple and Google have designed, essentially we talked about those keys, right? Those keys don't really contain meaningful identifying information about you. They just contain who you were around, for how long, and the Bluetooth signal of your phone uh, as it relates to the uh, folks that you were around. So it's hard to get context out of that, right? But when we talk about the actual states that have to develop the applications, that's where those potential threat vectors and where hacker kind of potential attack points can really come into play. And what I mean by that is these applications are now in the hands of the states to develop should they so choose. So each application may have a different security standard they, they abide to and may ask for additional data from the user, i.e. your name, your demographics, things that may help contextualize how long you're around someone else and, and better identify if you've been infected or not, or at least notify you, right? So when you start to introduce those things, it complicates security. So yes, there's definitely concerns, uh, but not from a, the framework 
designed by the Apple and Google um, team, but rather the applications themselves. And there's there's the more information you ask for, the more attack attack vectors there are, right? And not to mention the fact that there's the th the other uh, really significant potential attack vector is just a fake application, right? Folks uh, may want to get involved today and just go and, and type in contact tracing into their iOS or Android device and download whatever comes up first and you know freely give away information with the best of intentions. But it, as we talked about a bit, four out of 50 states have agreed to use uh, the framework. Many are developing their own applications, but as of today, zero applications uh, from a state have been deployed. So you have to, to think about that risk being there which is very much real. But you be, kind of begin to go down this road, Prince, of, of mitigating risk and what that looks like. I'm, I'm curious mm -hmm. as to how does the law in this country look at mitigating uh, these risks and how are they approaching data privacy rights as it relates to contact tracing? When we think of hacking um, from a legal framework, we're thinking of a few scenarios, right? Number one, someone hacking into a public health database or hacking into an individual's phone and matching the identification keys that they have from some central location uh, with actual phones, dates, times, locations, people, right? And it literally could be used to unearth people's whereabouts, track their footsteps, um, get their COVID status or exposure, etc. And if a hacker broke into a government public health database, trust me, Eric, there are plenty of federal and state laws that outlaw that behavior. I found I find that the person would be um, indicted and tried for unlawful access to a government database and tried for derivative uses of the proceeds of that data. That's an easy one, right? Um, but hackers breaking into an individual's phone to retrieve identification keys, locations, and health status. Since an individual's phone is not a, is not government property, um, it would be kind of up to the individual to file a civil suit or a criminal complaint. Uh, but that implies that the person knew that they were hacked. And as you can imagine, many people don't know they're hacked at all if they do get hacked until it's too late, right? Until their stuff winds out out there or individuals act on, on that information. So hacking individuals' phones for identification keys, locations, health status, again, it, it begs that question, is the juice worth the squeeze, right? I, I don't think that may be worth it, but here we, we rely on the cybersecurity of individual devices and app creators or moderators, right, like Apple and Google to... Um, approve applications for their, you know, store on, on the various app stores um, that, you know, are as hacker proof as possible, right? They, they're really the last line of defense to not make this any real issue. Uh, but number two, you have what I call a nightmare scenario of spoofing. What happens if someone sets a beacon and spoofs positive diagnoses or contacts with other phones. This spoofer has collected hundreds or thousands of identifier keys or, or phone numbers themselves, and they artificially inflate or deflate 
the number of possible contractions of COVID-19, right? What if they do this around election day? What happens, right? Do people stay home um, because they were told by the app that they've likely been exposed to someone and they haven't? That could be voter suppression, which is a huge problem, right? And an ongoing problem in, in the front of public ethos right now. And that scenario may, may not be so far-fetched. Data researchers interviewed by Health IT Security uh, revealed that, quote, hacktivists, especially in places experiencing civil unrest, may also disrupt these apps, not to, con not to steal or expose data, but because they dislike the idea of government or other surveillance. The group warned, quote, clearly there is a lot at stake here. Properly securing contact tracing apps is not just a citizen privacy and security issue and a government trust issue. It's a public health concern as well, end quote. So uh, especially given the civil unrest around the movements for black lives right now, immigrants' rights, civil rights and liberties, even against pandemic measures, Lawmakers should be brainstorming doomsday scenarios ahead of November elections. Lawmakers should be enacting federal laws that carry stiff penalties for spoofing, hacking, and accessing public health data through um, unauthorized means and for unauthorized purpose. And you mentioned something, um, fake applications. I can tell you from just my experience and research that hasn't really been floated around legislative circles as much as it really should. As you're kind of suggesting, Eric, that seems to be like the thing that's happening right now, even before apps, legitimate apps, even hit the marketplace. Um, so Attorney General Barr had, um, you know, created and promulgated a suite of what you call COVID laws. So one of them was like, PPE. You can't amass a bunch of PPE and much a bunch of hand sanitizer and then sell it at like premium, premium prices, price gouging, necessary things that people need, right? That's a law that was invented now under any other circumstances. Sure, you can buy all the hand sanitizer in the US and like price gouge people for it. Okay. But because of a pandemic, something about that is unethical, right? So it's a criminal law because we want to discourage that kind of behavior that we as a society feel is immoral, right? We should also though feel, and we should add this to the suite of COVID laws and regulations, fake applications, applications that are pretending to um, help people or give people information, but their unique and sole purpose is only to suck data away with no real bona fide um, effort to contact trace, right? They should, they should be prosecuted. We don't want people creating fake apps during a moment of national and international crisis um, just for the sake of collecting data and reselling it. That, that just seems immoral. So what would you say is at least being talked about with some serious momentum as to like what legal uh, binding documents are, are going to exist to for a citizen to point back to to say with regards to contact tracing, the law was broken with my data. Is there anything like at least seriously gaining some traction on the Hill or, or elsewhere? Yeah. So there are three laws really under consideration right now proposed in the U.S. Congress federal level. Number one is Republican Senators COVID-19 Consumer Protection Act. 
Number two is Democratic Representatives Public Health Emergency Privacy Act in the House. And number three, the Senate's Bipartisan Exposure Notification Privacy Act, or the ENPA, proposed by Senators Maria Cantwell, a Democrat from Washington State, and Senator Bill Cassidy, a Republican from the state of Louisiana. The ENPA is the one I really want to focus on here because that's that's the one I think has the most chance of passing. Um, and it says that automated exposure notification services. So notice they're not using the term contact tracing. And there is some um, uh, issues that have been raised behind calling these apps contact tracing versus exposure notification Probably one of the reasons why Apple and Google stopped calling their app very early on contact tracing, and they call it exposure notification. And from the names, you can clearly see this bill is syncing with um, the Apple-Google framework, right? Trying to give them rules of the road. So the EMPA says that, quote, automated exposure notification services must do six things. One, involve public health officials that deliver authorized diagnoses. Number two, requires affirmative consent from the user to enroll. Three, a conspicuous and readily accessible privacy policy, meaning that it must be easy to read and understand. Number four, restrict the use of data to only the minimum amount necessary to implement the service. Uh, no commercial selling to third parties, no amassing extraneous data that you really don't need. It'd just be good to have because it's good to sell. Can't really do that with this law. Um, number five, uh, these services must implement the most robust data security possible for patient health information. And number six, the automated exposure notification service must auto-delete data after 30 days and delete individuals' data at their request. The rules of the road are for not just Apple and Google, but for applications that are being created, right? A lot of what uh, you're saying reminds me of, of the framework that was developed initially, but th these same sets of, of, of laws apply to the applications as well. Is that, am I understanding that right, Prince? That's right, and I think um, it's so broad and a little ambiguous because I don't think legislators, modestly I say this with a lot of deference and respect for legislators, I don't think they really understand what Apple and Google are doing. Um, full transparency, it really wasn't until I talked to you, Eric, that I really understood what Apple and Google is creating, what they're creating is a framework, right? A like system that apps can you know, operate in and it gives, you know, the phone certain functionalities to do this quote, quote, contact tracing work. Um, and so the law like calls it exposure notification services. I think that's a wink at the apps, but I don't think legislators even understand the difference. Interesting. So it seems that the law is catching up to kind of how industry defines security, uh, but with a bit more language, which is Honestly, from from my perspective and looking at the framework, it's appropriate, and I think it'll it'll be more important for the states that develop applications on their own, as opposed to kind of what Google and Apple have done with security just inherently by design. So that's that's somewhat of a positive step to hear. 
Eric, so we've covered a lot about contact tracing apps here. I want to know from you, what are some of the takeaways? What are some of the main points you want listeners to walk away with? Yeah, so understanding the tech, right? So for us, when we pick up our phone and we think contact tracing, what 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 are we going to see? One, we're, we know that we have to opt in. To contact trace, we are opting in. It is a feature that we turn on. Uh, today, using just the framework as it exists, there's no way for you to opt in, right? Because the states haven't done, uh, haven't launched their applications uh, just yet. And no state's application is going to look the same. So with that, the framework was built for protection, right? Uh, protecting your uh, privacy as much as possible. So you should know that if you decide to contact trace, what you're sharing is your phone's ability to determine uh, who you were around without identifying who that person was and for how long. Uh, so know that your data is somewhat anonymous. It is owned by the state uh, and it would be difficult if it were to be breached to even make sense of what you've provided yeah. as a user. Yeah. I would say those are the big takeaways. Yeah. Prince, so what would you say from the legal and social aspect of contact tracing is really important for the listeners stuff. I think the most important things from the legal context first, uh, number one, there are no rules of the road right now. Like we're just kind of driving blind. Um, and there are a number of factors here, right? And, and a lot of them are political ideologies of not having rules and not having federally guided rules particularly by the Trump administration. They don't believe those are effective or even constitutional or legal. So they don't implement any kind of guidance for states. Um, but I would say, you know, number two, but there are some bills on the table. Each of them is coming from their own chamber and their own group with their own flavor. But this is a really pivotal time where we can do a little bit of shopping and testing of broader privacy rules with a more narrow contact tracing context. So some of the things we want to see in a larger consumer privacy bill, we can test those hypotheses out in a bill that only lasts 18 months or two years of the, of the pandemic. And that is an extraordinary opportunity lawmakers rarely get. Like the pandemic totally sucks. Like it's not something I would ever wish. Yeah. But while we're here, there's a legal opportunity to test out larger privacy legislation and to build something a la Americana that works for us, that, that builds in the considerations of our constitution, our bill of rights, the way our government is set up, the different powers imbued to different, you know, parts of the government and all these, all this stuff. We can kind of use the opportunity now to create something that works for us. And from the political and social realm, um, government, governments keeping, owning, retaining, accessing data is still sensitive. I definitely hear your point about, you know, the data doesn't really make any sense unless it's large enough aggregate, you need enough data points to make anything kind of make sense. But just the jest, right, of my location data being stored, accessed, kept, 
tracked by a government actor against my consent and derivative unforeseeable uses of that data used to make me a suspect in a lineup, used to make me, you know, be at a place that I wasn't at or be some witness to some crime that I don't want to participate in, right? Like that is particularly harmful for certain communities that are having an ongoing, very elevated and public conversation about law enforcement involvement and interactions. And so I'm just asking the public and lawmakers to consider in implementing some federal privacy legislation, we need something in a pandemic right now, consider that. Please don't forget about immigrant communities, poor communities, Black and Latinx communities in particular that are already over-policed, that are already harassed by intrusive and excessive government action. Don't subject them any further with a bill you think that works for everyone without doing the due diligence about how it'll affect the least of us. And that is my final points. It sounds like there's just there's a lot of potential here for goodness. Yeah. It just has to be thoughtful, both on the technology deployment side and the use of that technology by the, uh, the government uh, exactly kind of right. aspect. Yeah. Well, we thank you all for joining us today. Uh, in our show notes will be a bunch of links from a lot of what we've talked about today that, that you may find helpful or interesting from, yeah. from both the tech and the, the legal side of the house. Absolutely. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.